This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Joy Rhodes, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Uh, Joy was born in Roma in Western Queensland. Growing up, she loved two things best, reading and the bush, whether playing in creek beds and paddocks or climbing a tree to sit with a book. She remembers visiting her grandmother, a fifth-generation grazier, who told her stories of life on her family's sheep farm. It sounds very beautiful and idyllic, doesn't it? It, it was. Actually. I mean, of course, it's the bush, so it's jolly hard work. But yeah. as a child, I thought it was just spectacular. Yeah. Joy moved to Brisbane at 13, first for school and then to study law at university. Since graduating, she has worked all over. First Sydney, then London, Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo and New York. In New York, she completed a master's in creative writing and wrote much of The Wool Grower's Companion, a novel inspired in part by snippets of her grandmother's life and times. Her new novel, A Burnt Country, is a standalone sequel. So that's... <laughs> you can read them one by one is yes. what I'm getting at. Yep. Uh, the wool, so it's the sequel to The Wool Grower's Companion and it's an enthralling story of integrity, resilience and resistance. Joy now lives in London with her husband and their children. Is that right? Yeah, oh, so we're two little girls. Well, little, I say little, they're 11 and 13. No, I mean living in London. Yeah, they yeah. in London. Oh, so this okay. is a lovely um, sojourn, if you like, back... Um, home and without my family, which, you know, everyone says, oh, gosh, is that, um, you know, is that exhausting? And I'm like, actually, it's a holiday. <laughs> yeah, it is. It must be really nice. Yeah. Um, and the weather's been kind to you as well. Well, yes. in Sydney it has. Yeah, apart from Canberra, which was not kind because the wind blew very, very strongly, but it has been lovely. This amazing sky, the yeah. sky always gets me when I come home. How long have you been living in London? So I've been in London since 2009. Oh, well, um, a long time. Yeah, so it, it does feel like home, but, you know, there's that whole business of having your heart in two places. There's no question that when I come back, I don't, I feel at home. I feel in sync. I, I, you know, I love the bird calls. It sounds all very touristy, but it's just a wonderful thing. It's funny you should mention Big Sky because I've lived in London. um, And one of the things I miss, not just when I lived in London, but when I travel and come home is the sky. Mm, It's, you know, you come out of arrivals at, at, Mascon in Sydney and mm. usually, of course, jet-lagged and exhausted. And it's I, a long way. It's a long way. And then it hits you, this brightness, even in the middle of winter, mm. and I just think, oh, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. It really is. I'm a Do you know what also gets me is when they open that um, aeroplane door is, is the smell. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's quite distinctive. It and is. It's, I don't know whether it's the eucalyptus oil. It's mm. there's something there that something. just... 
Very distinctive. Yeah. And um, and do you think you'll stay in London? Is London I home? Think, I think so. My husband is French and so London is a good compromise. We're, we're close to French family. We have a lot of lovely Australians who come through London. I'm always having cups of tea, which yeah. is fantastic. So yeah. it's a good, uh, you know, a good sort of and a, and a spectacular city. You know, London yeah. is wonderful yeah. in, its, in its many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so tell me about, so we um, at Stories Behind the Story, we like to start where writing started for you. So growing up in rural Queensland, talk to me about that and talk to me about when you first started thinking about stories. So I always I was always a big reader, as yeah. is the case with, with almost all writers, and I I wanted to be I actually very specifically wanted to be a National Geographic reporter. That was what I wanted to be. And my mother very wisely said, mm, you know, I think she felt that was a long bow from from Rome in Western Queensland. So she encouraged me to study law because she said, you know, it involves words, which yeah. was obviously right. And but reading. <laughs> reading. But Just also, boring contracts. Oh, boring contracts. But she, I always did have pretty strong sense of justice and injustice. And so I think she felt that I was passionate about that and that that would be a neat combination. And it has been. The law has been, you know, very kind to me. I qualified as a lawyer and then I used that to, to work all over. But all the time, certainly as an adult, I was I was writing, and and the same as a child, I was always writing bits and pieces. You know, so you were thinking about creative writing when yes, you were studying. Yes, law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the creative writing it went away for a bit as I, when I was a junior lawyer. But um, then, you know, a, a lot of writers talk to me about that compulsion to write. Mm. You can't ever really get rid of it. And yeah, I hear that a lot. It's a it's an odd thing. So if I'm not writing, I feel, and I haven't been writing for like the past 10 days, and I don't feel comfortable. You know, it's like exercising almost. Mm. It's a weird thing. And I say that I teach creative writing in London and I say to students write regularly you may not write stuff that you will use necessarily but it's like being a musician you will get better yeah I talk about that and I've had authors talk about practice the practice of writing because for whatever reason writing has a reputation that it just for whatever reason everyone can do it and it just comes out of your head and you put pen to paper but that's actually not true there's practice there's skill there's you know, having a story. And I think a story and a craft. It, yes. It, I'd say to students, you'll get your craft good because once you can write competently, and I'm leaving aside now the the distinctive voices that each of us has. So, of course, mm. each writer will write differently. Each will have a, a way of putting words on paper, which hopefully will be beautiful in a unique way. So leaving all of that to one side, at the core of writing, creative writing, it seems to me, is a competent craftsperson. Mm. And so if you can, and that, which is why I suspect so many best-selling authors are former journalists, mm. because they can already write, they have that craft, and they move on taking those skills to story. How, mm. do, you, how do you turn whatever um, idea you have into a beautiful story? But I do say to people, take your craft seriously. Mm. I certainly do. I think writing's one of those things that you will spend your life hopefully getting better at. You'll never really say, right, I'm done. Now I can write, you know. No, well, I mean, I I, I talked to uh, Lee Child recently and uh, he was telling me that every time he sits down to write, to start a book, it's as hard as the first. Oh, and I, it, it, I can I mean, absolutely believe it. It is a difficult occupation. It, it is a difficult <laughs> occupation. People always say, oh, it must be wonderful being a writer. And it is wonderful being yeah, a writer. But, but it's, it's not easy. No, it's like a having a... 
a glorious problem, mm. right? So um, when was it? So you studied creative writing in New York. Were mm. you still working as a lawyer? I was lawyer? still working. So I was working full time and I did a creative writing master's at night and I thought that would kind of get it out of my system. Mm-hmm. But if anything, it made things worse because I saw a writer's life. The, the New School University in New York requires you not just to do coursework and creative work, but requires you att- to attend writing events like 10 per semester. And that means readings effectively uh, with writers all across New York. It's such a good idea. Oh, it's such a great idea. And it, it meant that I saw all kinds of magnificent writers and started to think, gosh, you know, it, it, time evaporates when I write or I talk about writing or I, I t- and I or I read. And I felt that if I could somehow manage the transition from my day job to writing, I would be certainly um, intrinsically frankly a lot more content it, mm. it was I'm quite passionate about writing so eventually I gave up my day job ostensibly to look after our two little girls my husband and I had jobs with crazy hours he poor thing still does and so I gave up to be at home with the girls but it meant that I could write mm. Um, mm. and so when did you start thinking that this is it was it a did you start with stories or did you start with the story for your first book? So um, the wonderful thing about writing classes for me was it forced me to write. You can't, you know, have to hand stuff in. So mm. you can't be like, oh, I'm not inspired. No, got to be no. inspired. And um, so what I tended to write when I was when I had a deadline for something creative was I tended to write about Wall Street because I was working on Wall Street or I tended to write about the bush and the Australian what a bush. Contrast. I know. And so one of my writing professors said to me this, you know, this stuff about the Australian, he didn't call it the bush, of course, countryside. Um, he said that, that is, the, to him, he felt it was unique and he was very strident. And I thought, oh, you know, and, and so I pursued it and I, for my dissertation, you have to write 100 pages and I did it. And that was the basis of my first book, The Wallgrass Companion. It took a long time from when I finished my master's because in the meantime I had my babies, but mm-hmm. um, that was really the core of it for The Wallgrass Companion. And then out of that grew The Burnt Country, although they are mm-hmm. standalone. Yeah, they are. Um, It's interesting. I find it really interesting. And it was only yesterday, I think we were talking to Tim Slee, who lives in Copenhagen, and he's written a quintessentially Australian book. And I wonder, is it that people that are living abroad remember the country with more fondness than people living in it? I think it's probably true. There's no question that when I was writing in New York, I was new to New York from, from Asia, and I felt much further away from home. And I, you know, if, if you have to think about what the light looks like and what the ground smells like, it transports you. So it, it is, there's no question that that So is it quelling homesickness, do you think? I think it is. It's a real love letter to Australia, both books. Having said that, I, th- I hope it is not saccharine. I really hope that it's an exposed version of Australia. So it doesn't idealise life on the lamb. It doesn't idealise being a woman on a remote place. I hope it's much more visceral and realistic than that. Mm-hmm. Do you think you dream Australian? I, I'm sure I do. So, yeah. so there's the great joke, right, that you must have a notebook by your bed. And the great frustration, you know the ways you wake, for me, as I wake, often my dreams, it's like water going down a plug hole. As, I ca- as my consciousness rises, my recollection drops. And so I'm like, wake up, wake up, because you had an idea. Quickly, quickly, wake up before Try it disappears. And Try and capture it. So absolutely. And 
often I'll find, you know, your subconscious works away and I might resolve a, a plot problem that I've had that I've been, that if I try to attack front on and sit down and write it down and change things around and everything I can't solve. But if I often, and I, th- I find a lot of writers like this, I think if you put it aside, your subconscious works away and yeah. then hopefully we'll come up with a solution. But yes, absolutely, dream. And so tell me what it was like then to finish your first book. It's, you know, it's, it was a lovely feeling for me because it had taken a long time. I, yeah. I had, you know, people ask me how long it takes to write your first book and that it was like 10 years. It, but it was sort of an intensive period of a year and then a big gap of about eight while I had my kids yeah. and then another 18 months at the end when I really sort of got it done. What I did find when I finished the first book was even before I had found an agent, I knew that set of characters had more to say and more to do. And so while the first book, The Will Grows Companion, is very much a standalone novel with as happy an ending as one would hope for, um, it the second book is the same set of characters in the same community, but a little the bit The crime genre does that well. Yes. Where yeah. you see the same detective, you know, and yeah. so, some of the same characters, not all of them, but you see two or three reappearing in almost every book. And then when an author wants to retire one of them, I mean, people are gutted. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I know, and I, I, what I try to do is I read right across genres. So yeah. I love, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of um, John Grisham. Um, I mean, I like the idea that... Well, that's right, Daniel. I love it. He's not writing and law. Writing and law, yeah. yeah. And yeah. in fact, The Burnt Country has a lovely, that lovely character, yes. Enid, who's a young woman solicitor. And that's an area that I think is very fertile ground mm. for me because it's both personal experience because there's, you know, some things change, some things never change, yeah. um, but also fascinating to think about any woman in a largely male-dominated world, whether that's a farm or a court or a courtroom. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that area. Do you miss the law? I don't really. I, you know, there's a, um, a wonderful organisation called Client Earth that uses the law to force governments to really enforce environmental standards, and I'm lost in admiration for that because that's mm. my kind of law. I mean, it's not the law I did at all, but it's the way that I would hope the law would best be used. So I'm, I miss feeling like... You know, I, I wonder if what I feel is I'm not making as much of a contribution as I should be to fighting mm. climate change. Really, good. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm a big 
advocate of, of doing stuff around climate change. So that's, that's I don't miss it in a I miss it in a sense of gosh, what what should I be doing? What more can I do? Yeah, I mean we think that every morning. I mean every morning I think that. Yeah, I think it's a it's a universal thing now. But and yeah. I'm really hoping that will translate into, a, a, you know, a sort of a connectedness of and a recognition by politicians that the time has come. Time is long past. But I think we recognised that ten years ago, and we're moving the other way. I mean, you know, look what's happening in London. Yes. Look what's happening in England. Look what's happening in the US. Look what's happening here. Yeah, I spend a lot of time. In fact, I've got on Twitter. I have my little. I have a little. You know, passionate speech alert that I put up because it's like, I do. I, I absolutely agree with you. It seems hopeless, but having said that, so many people feel so strongly. That absolutely. We just don't have good leadership in those yeah. areas. Yeah. That's Desperately in need of it. Yeah. Anyway, we're oh, not sorry, here to we talk digress. about that. Yes, exactly. we do. We do. <laughs> and I've often been accused of going political, so I'll try not to do mm. that. Um, <laughs> we'll be very well behaved. I we will be, too. be from yes. this point onwards. Yeah. Sorry. Um, tell me how you got your first book published. So that's not easy. It's not easy. I, I have to say, I was super lucky. My because I'd done my masters in fine arts, I had um, I had tutors and professors who were willing to make introductions. And I belong to a writing group in New York, independent of school, of yeah. the American school. Which Cook I think school. is a really good idea. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and it was the leader of that writing group who wonderfully made the introduction that resulted in me getting an agent. So I'm eternally grateful for that and many other reasons. Um, Alexandra also helped me enormously with my, my writing. I think there are, for a writer there are often some pivotal relationships and, yes. and um, Alexandra, is, Shelley is, is definitely one for me. So I was quite lucky. I very quickly got picked up and then we very quickly um, sold it. I think it... It was a whole series of different So did you things. sell it to the US market first? No, sadly. No. So we haven't sold in the US. We sold no. in Australia and the UK. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense to but me. But my agent yes. just happens to be in New York. Yeah. Right, that makes yeah. sense to me because I think the Australian landscape for some people, is, well, for Americans particularly, might be a bit difficult. Although, you know, there's been Jane Harper who's broken yes. ground. Yes, yeah. great books. Great so. books. Um, Leanne Moriarty, but I guess it's it's... Even though I felt that that book had a great sense of place, it's translated well to a coastline. Yes, anyway. isn't, isn't that a it? magnificent, yeah. wonderful series too? Series. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All standalone though. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Like yours. And so how did that feel after all those years? Um, you know, it's a funny thing. The imposter syndrome is frankly alive and well and lives in my head. So, oh, same. Um, I, you know, it was a wonderful thing but I... Um, Penguin, my publisher, wanted a two-book deal and I uh, said to lovely Stephanie in New York, I said, I can't do that because if the first one doesn't sell, it'll be really embarrassing and they, they'll want to get out of it. And Stephanie, you know, could yeah. hear her rolling her eyes. But um, so we did a one-book deal and then, of course, wow. Penguin wanted another book very quickly because Wool Growers, the Wool Growers Companion sold so So Penguin well. Random House here. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but having said that, even when the first one started to sell and it was clear that it was going to be a success, then I started to think, gosh, that's that's a wonderful... Th you know, then you start to think, gosh, and, and you think about how much I've longed to be a writer for so many years and, and now it's really coming true. It's almost yeah. as dream come true. I think the funny part is, though, imposter syndrome, so come time to deliver the manuscript for the second, when I should have been feeling, frankly, quite happy, you know, it was on time, I felt it was a strong book... And I submitted it to wonderful Bev Cousins, who is my editor at Penguin. We and love Bev. We do love Bev. She's, she's a wonderful person, wonderful editor. Yeah. And, um, and then for three or four days, because, of course, it's 
300 and something pages, so I can hardly expect her to read it in an hour. Yeah. And I, she, she said, yes, I've got it, wonderful. And then I didn't hear anything for three or four days. And they were the longest three or four days of my life because I went through the whole, actually, the first one was a fluke, complete yeah. fluke, and I can't write. Is there a name for the second book syndrome? It should be, yeah, I think Yeah, I think literally second yeah. book syndrome. So, <laughs> yeah. and lots of people, my lovely, one, one yeah. of my professors in, in New York said to me, take as long as you need for your second book. And then he said, but don't take as long as I do. And he, um, Jeffrey Raynard Allen, he said he took 14 years. Yeah. So, too long. Yeah, too long. Too long. Because <laughs> yeah. people forget you, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's a very much a literary writer. I'm probably more um, mainstream, but yeah. and he writes beautiful stuff. But yeah, 14 is probably too so much. So, Bev Cousins came back in a couple of days. Yes. <laughs> and, and you have not, of course, you, you think about that. You get that yeah. email and you're like, do I yeah. open it? Do I open it? And she loved it. Yeah. And, and Bev is a spectacular editor and so had. Um, suggestions about tying certain things together, which made it even stronger. Mm. So, you know, it's a it's a wonderful thing to have a wonderful editor because mm. she takes what you have or he takes what you have and, and then really makes it better, yeah. you know, like in, in a sense of the... Do you know some people resist that process? Um, I can understand it, but I think Bev was so helpful on the first and now... And she's very light touch, you know, yeah. she's very... And maybe that's just, you know, that's just the way we work together. Yeah. So I think it's crucial. I think it's the difference between a, a well-written book and a not-so-well-written book. I think so. I, I can mean, if often you, and tell if probably, a book hasn't been edited, if uh, a story has. I yeah, can tell. <laughs> I can. Um, you're yeah. not hiding from me. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Now, yeah. I feel very lucky to have found Bev. It's a lovely relationship and it's a very easy one. It's the first time I've spoken to somebody who's Australian, who lives in London, got published in New York, well, got well, an, an agent, agent in, in New, New York. York and is being published in Australia. Oh, I know. I'm a That's bit of a mess. First. This yeah. is the first for me and I've spoken to <laughs> hundreds of writers. Yeah. yeah, it does seem all over the place. I do think the the expat for that terrible word, but that idea that you're away and you write about home, mm. there is a, um, I think you have to be very disciplined. The writer has to be very disciplined because if you can't see the plant or the the creek or the roots that you're describing, there's no way on God's earth that the reader's going to. Do you think, to. do you think Australia, like I think of Peter Carey, for instance, I mean, you know, that's a clear example yeah. of somebody who hasn't lived here for years and years and, and years. And writes Australian. And writes Australian. Um, do you think that it's, um, in a way, it's it's dreamlike? It's, it's, Gosh, I hope so. Because yeah. I feel that, you know, of course everything moves on and even in 10 years a lot changes. Mm. Um, do you think it's that? It's the yearning? I hope so. You know, I hope there's a there's a lyricism to it, and and a longing. Yeah, yeah probably and absolutely. A longing. That's is. probably a better word. Yeah. Um, I, I I certainly feel, you know, a a connection to to the land in a bizarre sort of way, mm. and and I tried to write about that in the first book to some extent, and you know, I I. I for me, you know, if I'm, my sort of family's only been in Australia probably for. I don't know, 1820s or something, and yeah. yet I think about Aboriginal people whose families have been here for 60,000 years, yeah. and I 
begin to, you know, I can't, my head can't get round that, that, that connection to country. But I feel that in a tiny, tiny, tiny drop-like way in my own way mm. in such a shortened time frame. Um, and also mine, of course, is, you know, all over the shop. It's not even a specific piece of country. So I do think there's a yearning and a longing mm. for, for, for people who are away, for, for something that you grew up with, for something that is visceral to you. And do you think when you come back now, 10 years later, are things, how do you feel, how's your relationship with the country? So um, the physical country is like putting on an old pair of shoes. You know, it's beautiful. Um, and, and it's stunning and surprising in ways because you see, you know, you see the bark coming off gums and just sort of draping there and you think, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And and the whiteness of... of um, some trunks and things that the, the sort of the colours are more stark sometimes than I remember. Um, the the land itself, the, the people, uh, you know, I have to work hard to make sure I I keep up. Um, it's very easy to be far away and and to um, you know to be judgmental, mm. and I have to try very hard not to do that because I'm so conscious of climate change. Mm. Um, but I, having said that, I, I hope um, genuinely that there will be a, a rising up in the best possible way of people everywhere, right? A slow mm. recognition. I do think Australians feel, I'm not unique, of course, that that connection to land is very strong and to protection of the environment. Mm. And that I don't see as much at all in the UK. And I can't, can't help wondering that it's not because, you know, most Brits or uh, urban dwellers, like most Australians, but we're still closer to the bush, you know, in physical terms as well as, I think, emotional terms. Mm. And there's much more wildness here still. And so without that, I think it's hard to for people to understand what they're losing. And it's mm. still happening. Hedgerows mm. disappearing, you know, species Absolutely. disappearing, insectageddon and well, so water, on. water, you know, water mm. disappearing. Um, will you write... Uh, books set in other places, like in New York or in so London? So I, th I think um, I will. My, the next book that I'm – or the one I'm working on at the moment um, is set principally in Sydney, in fact, and not in the bush. But it has aspects of time in France, in northern France, and also a little bit in London. And that's partly deliberate because I do feel I want to push myself as a writer. I don't think you should stand still. But also I now know London to some extent – um, that, that is the one benefit of being an outsider. You observe mm. things perhaps that the locals don't see. Mm. So with some luck, the, the next one will, is, will be anchored in Australia and anchored in Sydney, but we'll have those other aspects, yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, oh interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, I just want to ask you um, one final question. Do you be and, – and I'm only honing in on Australian because you write Australian and you live in London – but how do you identify your children? <laughs> so that is a great question. I think the it better, the, the one for them is how do they identify themselves? Yeah. So they, they're growing up in the UK. They've got English accents. They've got English accents when they were quite so they little. They, although so I remember thinking, you know, I was, must have been somewhere on a common and I heard, mummy, and I thought... Oh, oh, my Lord, that's my child. Yeah. You know, it sounded like Prince Charles. Or, you know, I'm yeah. kidding, but, you know, it's yes. just that sort of, wow. So 
there are moments of, um, I'm sure, identity crisis for them. My husband is French, of course, yes. and they're growing, but I'm Australian. My lovely Australian family spends most of their time, whenever the kids and I are able to come out, indoctrinating them and convincing them that Australia is easily the best country in the world and they need to remember that. Yeah. So they, they're really a mixture. I think yeah. they feel a strong affinity with Australia and the 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 sense of space you know, and light, they, they, you know, the surf, they are fearless in the surf and I'm terrified because at the end of the day they're little English girls and yes. heaven forbid you need to be conscious of rips and things. Yes. So my sister also spends a lot of time teaching them about um, about stuff. So I don't know how they identify themselves. I, I don't think, and I worry about that because that's our job, right, as parents yeah. to worry about yeah. stuff. Um, but I hope that there's, I'm certainly passionately Australian. My husband is passionately French. We're, in our own ways, passionately English um, and British. I mean, I come from Scottish stock way back. Um, I mean, it's exciting. It's, yeah, it's a great It's start. a mix, but yeah. you want to hope they feel some connection. Yeah, yeah, and it gives them so many options in life, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, I hope so. I yeah. hope at the end of the day they just, that, you know, be live a useful life. You yeah, know, that's what absolutely. we all hope for. Joy Rhodes, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.